Let us pray. Father, we just bless your name. We bless you, O Lord. With all that we have, we bless you. And we know, Lord, that our strength comes from you, Lord. And this evening, it's no different. We ask you to enable us. We ask, Lord, for our hearts to be good ground as we posture to receive from you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, please speak to us, Lord, by this living word that we have, Lord. And we know this living word is none other than Jesus Christ. And we want Scripture always to reveal Jesus and the good news of this kingdom that we have in our midst. And so we bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight's title is Drama in Rama. We're going to go into Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Now as we read these three verses, I want you to hold also in mind what we went through the previous week. When we went through verses uh, 13 to 15, it was one section, really, you know, of this broader portion down here. So if you can keep in mind what happened last week about the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream, telling Joseph his assignment to bring Jesus and Mary into Egypt, and how they departed and it was fulfilled, the word of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now we continue in verses 16 to 18. And let me read the whole passage here to you first. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, and was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. You know, when I first plan the verses or the passages to speak, I never know which week it's going to fall on. But this week, as I went into this passage, and I realized, do you know we just celebrated Mother's Day? And as I celebrated together with my wife, she preached a wonderful message on Sunday, and we're wishing one another Happy Mother's Day, and I get in this passage, and here we read about Rachel weeping, mourning, crying, representative of a mother or mothers in those times. And I said, man, you know, it's too much of a coincidence in that sense. That it should be Mother's Day and all of you might still be reeling from your Mother's Day meals. But how do we look at this passage tonight? And you know, tonight's sharing will also cause us to understand the prophetic significance of our times from these three verses. Now up to now in our study of Matthew so far, we've seen some twists, we've seen some turns in the plot some anxious moments, but here in this passage, we have the very first tragedy in Matthew, the killing of children, or what theologians would title it as the massacre of the innocents. I'm not sure whether you have these questions within your hearts as you read this passage, but sometimes we will look at this and we have to ask like, how evil can men get? 
Will he stop at nothing to protect himself? Will he do anything and everything to achieve his own goals? Even at the expense of others. Do you ask these questions? And then we ask things about God. God, I mean, did you care about those mothers and the fathers who would, who would lose their children to a mad and an evil tyrant called Herod? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow innocent people or children to die or for them to be subject to bad situations and madmen? Where's the good news of the Messiah in the midst of such tragedies? You see, if we will be honest, we have asked these questions. In various forms, at various times in our own lives, we have questioned God also. And tonight we'll have a glimpse at some of the answers, and there are no easy answers I'll say to you. I'm not suggesting that what I share with you tonight is like, wow, you know, you're going to be satisfied with it. But I pray you will allow the Word of God to speak to you so that we can at least have a grasp of a correct perspective to provide comfort to us and maybe direct us to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. So very broadly, we will explore why tragedies like, like these, why do they take place? And who are those who are usually affected by these things? And of course, finally, what is God's response as we understand from Scripture? So let's start by dissecting the passage a little bit. We're going to read from verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. I want to begin by presenting to you the Herodian backdrop. This Herodian backdrop still exists in our time, by the way. And I'm going to present to you four simple points here for you to be aware that number one, Herod is still very much alive in our world. We can see that Herodian spirit that is there. He's very much alive in our world and our societies. And he could even be Christian or half Christian. You know, Herod was half Jew. Right? He calls himself a Jew, but actually he didn't really function like one. Next thing we will see is that Herods are actually biblically, if you understand, they are fools. Now, nobody likes to be called that term, so I'll explain a little bit more to you in a while. Herods also, they do not play fair. So for those of you who are always complaining, it's not fair, I'll say amen. You're right. Herods don't play fair. And finally, you'll see that Herods, when they are provoked, they become very angry very vindictive and very aggressive. Now, I know even as I share this, you, some faces might come to mind already. So let's look at the first point here. Herod is still very much alive because he's still king of his own kingdom. And when you know, and you see people who are threatened by Jesus, who is the real king, or anything of the ways of the kingdom, you will see a Herod in this person. Herod also possesses or displays a false worship, a form of false worship. Where, you remember he told the Magi, oh, you go and look for this Jesus, you come back and tell me so that I can also worship him. So Herod will display a form of false worship as opposed to the true worship of Magi, which we explored in the, in the message 
Where's the man? The Herods of our world also, they know enough of Scripture. Surprise, surprise. But they will twist it to their own advantage. And Herod will always want his own way, and they get upset when others go by another way. Herod will want his own way, but if you choose to go the Jesus way, they'll get very upset with you. This Herodian backdrop of Herod still being alive and well is still all over this place. And I want you to be aware because then you will know how to respond. The second thing like I shared with you, Herods are fools, although they would not admit that they are one. No fool will ever say, I'm a fool. That's why they are fools. <laughs> now, a biblical definition of a fool is not one who is stupid. The Bible calls someone a fool when they are proud, rebellious, unteachable, stubborn, selfish. You can add to that list. And so you be careful because if you display some or all of these traits, then the Bible would regard someone like that as foolish. This person would refuse to heed God's word and God's ways. And so I don't want to be a fool. I, I, I want to be a wise man. A wise person is one who is humble and teachable. A wise person will display and move according to the fear of the Lord. And of course, he will be obedient. He or she will walk in God's way. So you can see the juxtaposition of someone who is foolish and someone who is wise. And here we see that, that contrast in this story, it had to be Herod versus the wise man. You see that? And the wise men were ones who would worship, they were humble, they bowed down before the king, and they would go by the way of Jesus, but Herod would be considered a fool. And it's ironic because here it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, which we read, that he was deceived by the wise men. In the ESV, it says he was tricked. NIV says he was outwitted by the wise men. He thought he was really very smart, but actually he was uh, outwitted or tricked by the wise men. And I find it really apt that he was actually made a fool of by the wise men. Can you see how ironic this is? You read this whole passage and you realize, oh yeah, the, the one who sought out or started out to deceive ended up being deceived. Or we can say the old fox was outfoxed. Now, do you realize that in, math, uh, in the Bible, actually in Luke chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus actually uses this title, Fox, on Herod's son, another Herod. And he was beaten at his own game. He had a taste of his own medicine. But you see, a fool will never admit that they are fools. And deceivers hate to be deceived. And that's why we go to the next point. Herods do not play fair. They do not play fair because they are allowed to deceive other people, but others cannot deceive them. Now, is it alive and kicking this kind of ideology in many of the people that we understand today? Yes. And if you be honest, I think sometimes we suffer from that too. I can say things, but when you say I say, how come you're so rude? But when I say something that is perhaps not in place, I will find ways to justify it and rationalize it. Yeah? But on a larger platform, these Herods expect others to tolerate them 
but they are largely intolerant of other people. In other words, you must, you must understand me, la. you must pity me, la. you must support me. La. But to support you, no, I will not do it. Why? Because I'm selfish and I don't play fair. I don't apply the same rules to myself as I would on others. And what I want to do is I want to protect my own freedom, but I'll place limits on other people. I expect everybody to kowtow to me or to, to understand me, but I don't need to understand anyone else. And I can do to others as I please, but when I'm on the receiving end, oh, you watch out. You see, this Herodian backdrop, this Herodian uh, spirit is still so much alive if we would admit it. And this is totally opposite of God's kingdom. Because Jesus would teach in Luke chapter 6, verse 31, He says, just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But a Herod will say, I can do to you, but you cannot do to me. So what happens when you do to a Herod? He doesn't play fair. He gets provoked, he becomes angry, he becomes vindictive, and he's very aggressive. Today we have another spirit, we call that by, it's called the Jezebel spirit, right? The Jezebel spirit is the same way. Someone has explained it this way, that they go to extremes, the Jezebel spirit. They will go to soft approach first. They'll try to be nice to you. So Herod goes to the Magi and says, you know, um, oh, this Jesus, King of Jews, oh yes, yes, very good. You go and give and bring back word to me. They go to soft approach. But if that doesn't work, they will swing to the other extreme and they become the aggressor. And now suddenly he will go out there and say, you see, they snooked me, they bluffed me. Oh, I'm victimized. I'm the poor thing one. So you can't blame me if I'm going to take things out on them. You know people like that? So instead of acknowledging a mistake or a motive, they, they self-justify and they will intensify their efforts. And so they will do all things to either take you out or they will get you one way or another. See, if you look at this Herodian backdrop, it really describes really the world that we live in. Why do these things happen? And here we go into a bit of a theological understanding I want us to discern what I call the depravity of man and the demonic deception. We would want to look at depravity of man, in other words, sin, and demonic deception is really from Satan and his, uh, and his angels or his agents. And I always remind people, you know why Herods will act that way? I mean, all humanity, we are, we are capable of acting that way. We know it's because of sin. And sin alone leads to death and will kill. Do you know that Satan doesn't even have to do anything? We will still die because of sin. See, sometimes we blame the devil or we give him too much credit. All he needs to do is sit down and watch you revel in your sin and you will die. That's all he needs to do. But... Because man never wants to take responsibility for ourselves, it's easier to blame someone else, you see. So we blame the devil. But don't give him so much credit. We're doing quite well destroying ourselves. <laughs> now we've got to be very clear. Sin will kill. It results in death. And that's why 
we read already earlier in Matthew, that we need to be saved from our sins. Now, God has acted in human history. And He has brought salvation in through Jesus Christ. Now, here comes the catch. Because God has acted, now Satan has to do something. If there's no plan of salvation, Satan doesn't need to move. Think about this. He can watch the latest DVD and eat his popcorn. He doesn't have to worry. And he will enjoy the show. But because there is a means of salvation, that's the good news, Satan has to move. And so this is what he does. He tries to thwart God's plan of salvation. And he capitalizes on the sin that is already within the human race. And he does this usually through deception. That's why he's called the deceiver. He wants to get men to keep serving and submitting to this master called sin. I mean, honestly, you don't even have to worship Satan per se. You just keep worshipping and following this master called sin. Okay, whatever sin tells you to do, you just do it. He doesn't need any Satan worship, but let's be honest. I'm really stretching our minds a little bit here tonight. He doesn't have to say, you need to serve and worship me. All he has to say is, you keep serving and worshipping yourself. You keep serving and worshipping the God that you create after your own image. That's all he needs to do. And do you realize that much of what we hear of today's Christianity sounds like that? It's all about you. Everything is done for you. And as long as you feel good, can so wherever we go, if we are listening to that kind of a message, could we be listening to something that's deceptive because all that's important is you and I? Now we think we are serving something or someone who is God, but we are actually serving a God we have created after our own image. Okay, so you see now that Satan, that the demonic deception works on the depravity of man. And like Herod when Satan doesn't get his way, he gets angry. I'll give you a verse. And we read it actually in Revelations chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. He's angry. And not only is he angry, he's angry because he knows that his time is short. Very, very, very short time. Very angry. Makes him even more kanjong. Which makes him angrier some more. And he will work through anyone who's willing to be used by him. Through sin, of course. And so we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, that many are caught in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to do his will. Now Christians need to read this a few times. Because if you and I, if we are not doing the will of the Father, guess whose will we are doing? The enemies. If you are not on assignment for the kingdom, guess whose assignment you are doing? There are only two sides. There's no middle ground where you say, uh, what is it? Chokba, no, Belize, is it? What? Where you're exempted from either kingdom. No. You are either doing the Father's will 
And if you are not, then you are contributing to some other person's will. I want you to see that today many people reject the truth. But it's the truth and our obedience to it that sets us free. So we have many, many believers who are still held captive in that sense to do the enemy's will. Observe the intensification of the effort that is happening these days. The salvo that's coming against the church and morality over the last decade at least. This is what's happening. Do you realize that we are having worldview wars? We call it the culture wars. It's all about mindsets. But you see, if we are deceived in our minds, then we will hold a mindset or a worldview that affects the way we live for Jesus or not. For example, postmodern discussions have gone on for quite a while already. Anyone below a certain age, say of like 35 downwards, you know, these would be the postmodern generation. Those younger, now today we call them the millennials. Their mindsets, have you realized, my friends, they are different. From the way we see things to the way they see things, their worldview has changed. And postmodernism tells them this thing there are no absolutes, truth is relative, morality is relative. And so you decide what you want to believe, and I'll decide what I want to believe. One other tenet about postmodernism is also tolerance. We must tolerate one another. But you don't realize there's a Herodian spirit in there because they want you to tolerate them, but they will not tolerate you. It's one-sided. They want you to understand them, but they will not seek to understand you. Our worldview discussions will go into humanism, where everything is about us, where we have basic human rights. Now understand that concept really is, is, is from a Christian point of view first, that we are made in the image of God. That's why you know, we, are, we are to be accorded dignity as human beings. But that has been taken even to an extreme of human rights to say that I have my right to do what I want to do. And we extend it now even to children. Children have rights. So you cannot force them. You know, if they are in a Christian family, you, know, you cannot just bring them to church. You must give them a right to choose any religion they want. In some countries, it's gone so crazy that you cannot just put a label of Christianity upon your child, although you are a Christian family. They're protecting the rights of the child. Extend that further, they're protecting the rights of animals. Hedonism is... An ideology of pleasure, deconstruction, redefinition. Now, some of you might not be familiar with such terms. But what this really means is that you are taking something that, is, that has been established for years, decades, centuries. And they are deconstructing it and they are redefining it. For example, marriage, family. Today, you know it's being twisted and perverted. So I want you to see this Herodian backdrop that is there. And this gives you a clue to understand why things happen in this world. Why bad things happen in this world. It's because of this spirit. Where sin still exists in this place. And the enemy, Satan, works and acts upon it and would use anyone who is willing to do his will. But we have good news, praise the Lord. 
that over and above all this, there's another word called the sovereignty of God. That we have a divine foreknowledge. Because God is not out of control. He has not lost control of the world, right? Sometimes we look at the things that are happening, it's like, Lord, where are you? What's happening? But this topic about foreknowledge is something that's very difficult for us to grasp. Why? Because God is infinite. And here we are with finite minds, it's very difficult to understand these concepts. Another reason is we think in linear terms. We think within time and space. We think of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? But God is not limited by all these things. He is not limited by all these. His interaction with man, although he operates within these constraints, he's not limited by time and space. And so if we look at the sovereignty of God, we have a better grasp, you know, to understand the nature of sin that is in humanity, as well as the demonic deception that comes through Satan. See, God knows the evil that will take place. But that does not, that does not mean that He ordains the evil to take place. You see the difference here? He knows it's going to take place. But He does not make it happen in that sense. Because He does not, He's not the originator of evil. There's nothing evil in God. So once we understand that, then we know that He allows that evil to take place. Now, we may not like that truth, but that is the truth. You have to embrace that truth, that God allows it. Because the moment you say, no, God did not allow it, what you're saying is that God was powerless to stop it. Amen? See, God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. If He sees evil coming, He can stop it anytime. That's His sovereignty. But because he knows it's going to happen, he allows it. That does not mean he's out of control. In fact, sometimes when we look at the things that happen, the evil, the bad things, and we think, you know, uh, God is not powerful enough. Stop. Because the opposite is true. You have to take one step back and you say, God, you allowed it. It's going to happen. It looks like everything is out of control. But still, in your sovereignty and in your power, your plans will still be established. And each time I look at that, I stand in awe. It's like, man, that's how powerful my God is. He allows each and every one of us to do our little funny things, okay? And everything looks like it's all running amok. But the Bible says, the purposes of God will be accomplished. Who wants to say amen? amen. Alright? So look at this picture. You must see this in totality. Because what is evident before our eyes, you will always see sin. What is natural for us to blame is always the Satan, the devil. But don't miss the hand of God. See, this is the Herodian backdrop that we live in today. And it still goes on. We may not see Herod killing babies in the way that it's described here, physically in our country. But you know it still happens in some other parts. Let's carry on. And as we look at verse 16, seeing that Herod was exceedingly angry, this is what he did. He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Let me show you 
a little map. I'm not sure whether you are able to see this clearly. But it's really just to show you this is where Bethlehem is. Jerusalem is just a stone's throw away, as we have already uh, established. And Rama, because it's just um, nearby in the entire vicinity. Herod acted on the information that was provided by the wise men. And this sneaky guy, he's very smart. To be safe, he factored in a margin of error. And so he says, I'm going to kill boys two years and under, just to be safe. Okay, the star came out about this time. Uh, if I do my calculations, it should be one year old, one and a half, maybe two. Let's play safe, you know, from two down. Um, let's just kill them. And Bethlehem, it's where the king will be born. But let's not stop at Bethlehem. Um, let's see whether, you know, we can go to some other place too. And so do you know that it was recorded by Augustus Caesar, this statement, it is better to be Herod's hog or pig than his son. Because Herod has a reputation of being that ruthless. That he will kill his own family members or anyone who would threaten his position. And it is not confirmed, but some commentators believe that even in this massacre of killing babies, he did kill one or two of his sons. That's the Herod we're talking about. And to be safe, you know, he was not just in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the main place, but he extended the boundaries a little bit. Now, how many boys are we talking about? At that point in time, Bethlehem, not a big place, very, very small town. If you extend it, some say it's like 30 children, 40, maybe max 50. Not many in that sense. But one baby dying is one too many. Yeah? And you also find that it's not recorded by major historians because this killing of this number was nothing compared to what Herod would do. So they didn't, they didn't record, record this in any you know, of their history books. Having established that, we saw that these babies were literally dying for the Messiah. Who were these? Let's look at them. The first we establish is that they are innocent people, helpless. Was it because of the sins of their parents that they were killed? Some seem to think so. That it was, you know, in that time of apostasy and idolatry in, in Israel, and this was perhaps, you know, one of the consequences of that. Was it for their own sins? Were they being judged as, as little toddlers or babies for um, soiling their diapers? Maybe they didn't feed too well that day. Or it's their own sin. They didn't sleep properly and they kept their parents up the whole night. So uh, a judgment came upon them. Obviously not, right? These were innocent babies and they had not reached that age of accountability. That's the first thing we see about this massacre. Do you know, realize that their only crime, in inverted commas, their only crime was that they fell within the same age range as Jesus. And they happened to be in the same location as Jesus. Think about that. In other words, they were identified with Jesus. 
Hold that thought for a while. Just because they fell into that statistic, they died for the Messiah. And it is interesting to read this passage because you look at them and you realize, do you know these were the very first ones who died for Jesus? They were the first ones who gave their lives for Jesus Christ. And this is right at the start of Matthew. And then later on, of course, he would declare that Jesus would die for their sins. What are the implications for our application? We can look at this and we say, yeah, you know, it's nice, you know, good parallels. Let me just give you some points as you consider this. You know, Herod acted on the information that was provided by the wise men. And I would caution us to exercise wisdom and judgment when we share information or downloads or anything about our assignments from the Lord. Because sometimes in our eagerness as we share with someone, people who have the Herodian attitude or that spirit, they're all too ready to question it and they're even ready to kill these. You may be excited for the kingdom of God, but not everyone shares that same excitement. And I've heard many people who have come to me before and they share with me and say, you know, I share this with this brother. And I say, okay, so what did this person do with, uh, for you? Nothing wrong. Or I share with this other person, like, oh, then how? Oh no, nothing lah. This person laugh at me. This person begin to question me. There are others who are not interested. And that's why I would caution us that as we receive an assignment or you're trying to process your alignment towards your assignment, walk with people who love Jesus. Seek godly counsel and encouragement. Talk to people who will be willing to process with you and to pray with you. Because there are habits out there who are willing to just stop that. The second point is that when you identify with Jesus, just like the babies and the toddlers, be prepared to live for Him and also to die for Him. When you identify with Jesus, be ready to live and to die for the King. Now here comes the funny thing. You might be minding your own business. Just like these little babies. They didn't know what was coming to them. You could be an innocent bystander. But you know something? The moment you declare Christian, the moment you declare follower of Jesus, be ready for any eventuality. I think we must hold that readiness within our hearts. You know, sometimes we are still arguing and fighting, you know, I'm not ready to be a disciple, I'm not ready to commit and all that. Do you know that if anyone comes against us, they will not ask you whether you attend church, they will not ask you whether you're a disciple, they will not ask you whether you're in love with Jesus or not, they just ask you, Christian, yes, boom. We are arguing over wrong things. The point is, the moment you identify yourself with Jesus, get ready, because you bear His name. We have to be prepared for that. Next thing is that we want to protect the innocent. And we want to protect the helpless from the Herods in our world. A few quick points on this for you to just think about. How do we protect these little ones? Today, in a civilized country per se, a first world or second world type country, we may not kill children in this manner, but we kill them in other ways. 
abortions, pro-choice movements. These are all Herodian spirits. Ideology of feminism, planned parenthood, where they tell you children are not to be valued. See, these, you must protect the innocent because the fetus that is within has no voice. And sometimes we participate when we do not voice our objection. Or for example, contraceptives that are what we call abortificient. Where we tell our younger women to say it's okay to be on contraception, but not understanding that some of these contraceptives seek to abort the fetus by creating a hostile environment within the womb. So when the fetus does not implant, and you know when a fetus is a fetus, it is a life. The body, in inverted commas, aborts. How about depopulation theories? Now some of this may be new to you, but this is going to sound really absurd. Depopulation theories will tell you, we have to save the world. Don't have children. Why? Because children will consume more resources and we will create, uh, we'll, we'll, we will have more carbon dioxide, we will use up the energy and the fossil fuels, fuels and all that, and it will contribute to climate change and global warming, and so we have to protect ourselves, don't have so many children. There's something warped about that teaching, by the way, right? Because if there's no children anymore, there's going to be no world anyway. Can you see the problems here? How do we protect our children? We, we parent and we spiritual parent them also. Guarding against worldviews that are rampant all over the place. And you know these worldviews are also amongst Christians and also within the church. What are we doing to raise a godly generation? You know these are all kingdom assignments. These are all kingdom assignments and sometimes we miss it because, you know, we, we want to we wanna serve here, we want to serve there, but we miss our children. And as fathers and as mothers and as spiritual parents, we have assignments in that area. And so when we see the Herodian backdrop and we understand why bad things happen to seemingly innocent people, we have a part to play, you understand? And we have to ask the Lord, Lord, where do I fit in? in this larger kingdom agenda. It looks as if, you know, everything is falling apart, but God is saying, look, no, I'm still in control. You just need to align with me so that you'll know your role and your task and be faithful to do it. Then as we go into the next verse in 17 and 18, here comes the third part of the message. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We know that this quotation is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. This was prophesied during the time leading up to Judah's fall to Babylon. Now remember last week in the previous lesson, we read Hosea 11 verse 1, and that was prophesied to Israel, northern kingdom, before the fall to Assyria. And Matthew now quotes Jeremiah, almost completing the picture of both 
the north kingdom and the southern kingdom because God is, or rather, Matthew is wanting to tell us that this message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, applies to all of Israel. And once again, this is not predictive prophecy in that it, Jeremiah was not prophesying the killing of babies by Herod. But this prophecy shows us a prophetic pattern. That's what we realize. That prophecy can be showing us a pattern of how God interacts with His people. And it was, uh, it was describing a scene in Rama, a scene of anguish, a scene of sorrow and great pain. Because this was what happened in Rama, years after Jeremiah declared this verse. It was a place where captives were rounded up and collected. It was just five miles north of Jerusalem. And after they are collected, they are deported to Babylon. And at this place, families will be broken up. Children will be separated from their mothers and their fathers. The closest thing we can think of is perhaps during the Japanese, opera, uh, Japanese occupation in Singapore. Where the Japanese will come and they will load all the people up and after you never know what happened to them. Some were taken away into exile, others were killed. But the mothers... The fathers did not know what would happen to their children or if they would ever see them again. Now, why Rachel? Rachel is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And we read in Genesis, she had a desire for children and to have descendants. He says, give me children or else I die. And the sad story is that after she gives birth to first Joseph and then after that, Benjamin, she dies after labor. And she was buried near Bethlehem. Can you see? And so there's this huge scene that's happening now in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem. Rachel is buried in Bethlehem and she's depicted as if from her grave she was crying for her descendants. Her grief was so great, her cry was so devastating it reaches from a grave all the way through to Rama, where that scene happened years ago. And she was refusing to be comforted. You can almost imagine a mother's grief and a mother's cry that is different. The bond between mother and children is always so precious, is it not? So Matthew was really using Jeremiah 31 verse 15 to describe the extreme sorrow that was experienced at the time. It was also used to describe another great calamity or a very, very low point in Israel's history. But you see, if we understand prophetic pattern, then we'll say, let's look for the pattern. Amen? Okay, we know this verse now. We know this scene. What was Matthew trying to say? Let's look for the pattern. To see the pattern, you've got to go back to chapter 31. And I would commend to you that you read both 30 and 31. Because just like Hosea chapter 11 forward, a few chapters, carried a message of hope and comfort, Jeremiah 30, 31 onwards would also carry a message of hope and of comfort. And... I've done uh, you a favor by showing you. See, verse 15 
describes pain and anguish. In verse 16 and 17, if you read, you will see, thus says the Lord, stop your weeping, because there is a future hope that is coming. Then you go on reading in verses 18 to 22, Jeremiah describes how that future hope will be realized. Because God says, I'm going to bring your children back. How? Number one, through repentance. They are going to turn. They have been disciplined. They are in Babylon. And they will be brought back. 23 to 30, and when there's repentance, God says there will be restoration. And 30 to 34, which is a famous passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, God answers, in those days, I will establish the new covenant. 35 to 7 to 37, Israel will be established. As long as you see the sun, moon, and stars still operating, Israel will stay with me, and I will stay with Israel. That's God's promise. And then finally, 38 to 40, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Can you see this prophetic pattern that's there? In other words, Matthew is saying, look, there's a huge cry from Rachel all the way through to Ramah. They've lost their children. Herod has killed each and every one of them. But don't stop there. This is a message about the kingdom. This is the message about the Messiah. There is good news. Good news is coming. There's a future hope. Every time we see a calamity, we know there will be a future hope. Matthew is saying, look, just like in the time of Jeremiah, it's going to come through a repentance. There will be a restoration, but this time it's going to be different. It's not going to be the original covenant. God says, I will establish a new covenant. And Jesus is the one that mediates that new covenant. God is not done with Israel because Israel will still yet be established, but in a different way. And I believe when Jerusalem will be uh, uh, rebuilt, we're really talking about the new Jerusalem that is coming. But let me show you two side notes. We mustn't miss this transition. Where we read after the restoration, before the new covenant, there's a transition. Something changes. In verse 29 of Jeremiah 31, In those days, they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. What does this mean? You see, where previously there was an identification of generational sins, right? If a father has sinned, then there's a consequence. Then because of that, you are going to suffer for that. You know, and we are judged back to the generations. But when the new covenant is established, the Bible is now telling us we are moving now from generational sins, although there are consequences that we suffer if our parents do not make the right decisions. We don't keep blaming the parents. We now take responsibility for personal sin. Can you see this? 
And so some people who keep looking back to generational sins, sometimes they never stop that. You've got to go all the way back to Adam in the first place. It doesn't end. So whilst we suffer from the consequences of decisions that have been poorly made, or actions poorly taken, we today identify personal sin. It's a personal belief in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen? And this is important to know because we move from a corporate identification to a personal responsibility. Not only that, after that we will read about Israel and Israel will be established. In fact, Paul declares in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 onwards and within there he shouts, all Israel will be saved. Now what does that mean? Does it mean every Jew will be saved? The different theories, but my personal opinion is this. Israel, in God's heart, will be established. There's a corporate election called Israel. But there is a personal decision to believe in the Messiah. I want you to understand the difference. So that when we see that, and apply that also to the church, we also begin to understand that the church is a corporate election. That when God says that I will bring my church to a certain place, it means corporately He will bring this church. But individually, the believer has a decision to make whether you want to partake in that or not. You see the difference here? And I'm showing you this parallel and this distinction because from a corporate or generational identification it comes to personal responsibility in the same way there's a corporate election but it still depends also on personal response to what God has determined for each of us simply paraphrased God will perfect His church corporate but individually as believers we stand accountable for every assignment He has prepared for each of us so let's bring it to a conclusion. See, tonight I want you to see something of prophetic significance. In the beginning, I share with you the backdrop. This backdrop is still with us. And the faster we understand it, the easier, okay, maybe easier is not a right word, the more we will understand how to respond and how to position. The world stage gets darker. We know that things are happening at a rapid pace. Things are escalating. And we don't even know what's really going to happen on, in September. All we know is the world is just going crazier and crazier and crazier. That's why we must heed the words of Paul that, that tells us, don't walk as foolish people. Walk as those who are wise discerning because the days are evil we must walk as wise so that we can understand the will of the Lord then we align with the will of the Lord then we move according to how he would determine for us those will be wise people in our times and as you move you must beware of the Herods these are the agents of Satan they may or may not know they are doing the will of the enemy because there's demonic deception that's upon them. Their eyes are blinded. 
You know, against these agents of Satan, we are to be agents of God. While these are on assignment for Satan's kingdom, we must be on assignment for God's kingdom. And against this backdrop, we be prepared to live or to die for our Messiah. Someone preached it this way. He says, Do you know it's easier to die for the Messiah? To live for the Messiah is tougher. Because if someone puts a gun to our head or beheads us, boom, gone. We're in a better place. Those who stay on still have to struggle through and decide whether you want to uh, believe in Jesus still or to renounce Him. But as long as we identify with Jesus, we must be prepared for the eventuality. I'm not bringing you doom and gloom. But I think we must encourage one another so that we can be equipped, that we can stand steady. Along the way, we serve the innocent, we help the needy, and we be a voice for the helpless. You know, some of you may have your assignments there, you know. And in our keeper's statement, I always say is that we have to be aware, but not apathetic. We have to examine our hearts. Have we been aware? We've heard of so much. We've been going from teaching to teaching to teaching. But when it comes to acting out and living it and saying, Lord, is this what you want me to do? We stop short then we miss that assignment. Of course, finally we have to ask ourselves and we put ourselves in the picture of drama and Rama. Perhaps you might be going through some drama in your Rama. And I'm not here to belittle that. I'm not here to spew theology, you know, to try to explain that away. Whatever you're experiencing, read Jeremiah 31. You may be crying, you may be screaming out, just like the voice of Rachel that reaches out all the way through to Rama. Let your voice reach into the throne room of God. And God hears the cries of His people. But I see, as you go through this teaching or this lesson, then don't just read one verse of Jeremiah 31. It's one verse of pain and anguish amidst 39 verses of hope. One in 39. And you know, it reminds me of the words of Paul that says, you know, our momentary light affliction cannot compare with the eternal weight of glory that we will receive. See, the good news of Jesus Christ and His kingdom is always about hope. It's always about restoration. And this hope that we are talking about is not something that is elusive. It's not something that is just, you know, make you feel good. No, it's, it's, it's a certainty. Do you know that this prophecy that was given to, to Israel, they would have to wait 70 years for it to be fulfilled before they came back into the land again. But for us, when we realize this hope, it's going to go into an eternity, into God's presence. This is a hope that is certain. That's why in Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20, the writer says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. The writer knows we will go through difficult moments. We will go through tough times. But you need to know this promise. Otherwise, when you're on assignment, you will give up and you will stop. If you have no assignment, even worse, nothing to fight for. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. 
where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So friends, tonight, drama and drama doesn't have to stay drama in our hearts. It's a message of hope. It's a message of comfort. My desire was just to present to you, to understand a backdrop, to understand our response, and to understand God's faithfulness and His promise. And so I leave this with you this evening. We're going to pray. And specifically, I want to pray for those who are experiencing that drama in your own life. Whatever you may be going through, it could be a relationship, it can be a challenge in the office, you know, or it could be something that you have been devastated you know, about or over, right? Whatever it might be, I want you to look to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. All right, come, let's close our eyes and let's pray. Lord, we come in the name of Jesus. We know, Lord, we are washed by the blood, Lord. And we declare, Lord, this is the promise we have that we can come into your presence and to find help in time of need and also to have your grace. And Lord, through these verses, you reminded us that this world is spiraling almost like seemingly out of control because we are trying to make it better, but it just gets worse. We understand it's a consequence of sin and sinful people trying to make things work, but nothing is going to work if it's not Jesus. We understand there's deception that is happening right through, Lord. But Lord, I thank you you've given us the truth that will help us open our eyes to know how to live. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, for my brothers and my sisters this evening, because some of us may have just been innocent bystanders. We were doing our best. We were just minding our own business, but we have been hurt or disappointed or experienced pain and hurt in some ways or by someone. Father, we choose to stand upon your word. And we want to release these people who, like Jesus says, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. But Lord, the pain that we face, Lord, and we struggle, maybe it doesn't compare to what Rachel experienced from the grave, or maybe it does. All we know is, Lord, you know that pain because you saw your son die on that cross. And yet you are able to declare hope and comfort and restoration. And so, Lord, this is what we want to do for ourselves. We hold on to that hope and restoration in Jesus' name. And is there anyone here who needs to receive that assurance this evening? I invite you, receive it right now in Jesus' name. And so, Father, I just thank you that your love and your grace will go forth right now. That your love, your grace will be sufficient for all of us. Comfort those, Lord who need to be comforted. comforted. Wipe away those tears, O oh Lord. And Lord, for every negative experience that we have experienced in our own Ramas, Lord, I pray, bring restoration, bring healing. And Lord, we thank you, we declare once again the hope in Jesus Christ. May we carry this as we call this meeting to a close and as we go back to our own homes, our families, now on assignments. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.